so this is it. Our final episode of the first season. Did you know we had seasons? Wow. <laughs> I thought I thought we were just doing stuff just to do it. I didn't know there was a rhyme or reason to it, but it's <laughs> nice to know that we have seasons. That's pretty dope. <laughs> we are going to go on a quick vacation from the podcast. Uh, we'll still be yeah. working because we're fools and we work yep. all the time. But there's going to be some new-ish content for listeners to hear at the very least. And it's going to be fun. And I hope you have a really nice holiday season, whatever you celebrate. Whatever it is. If yeah. you're heathens like us, then <laughs> I hope you have a great time drinking champagne in jacuzzi, as is tradition. <laughs> Obviously, obviously. I mean, the main thing is we're not going to leave people hanging. We're going to give them content. And uh, while you're listening to that content, like you said, Soleil, we're going to be, um, you know, drinking champagne, holding away, doing God knows what terrible heathen gremlin things, because uh, that's who we are. Definitely involving holes in walls somewhere, I'm sure. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleho. On this episode, we speak with Roman Mars, host and creator of the podcast 99% Invisible and co-author of the book The 99% Invisible City. It'll be interesting to see what sticks, if any of it does, like if we have rolling pandemics, if this is just part of our life. Roman is an interesting choice for us. He's not necessarily a restaurant person. He barely eats at restaurants. In fact, he is mostly a taqueria guy, which I'm a big fan of. I think that's awesome. But we talk a lot about how our experience of restaurants have changed, our material existence has changed, and just the way in which we think about the architecture of those spaces, even the architecture of the apps that we use to access food these days has taken on a really fascinating meaning. And that is, of course, what Rowan Mars is all about. So stay tuned. This is a really fun episode and sadly, yes, the last of our first season. But I think you'll like this one. Thanks so much for joining us, Roman. It's so exciting to talk to a fellow podcast host, but also one that is so prolific and you know, as a bonus for us, local to the Bay Area. Yeah. So we appreciate you coming on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a joy to be here. <laughs> so listeners might be kind of confused, even though they're probably podcast nerds, so they're excited to hear this. Um, <laughs> they might be wondering why we have you on the show, because your show doesn't necessarily touch on food all that much. Um, Not really. <laughs> but I hear that you have really strong opinions about Bay Area food. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, I guess you, you should have strong opinions about food as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think I have some, you know. <laughs> what would you kind of ride or die with as far as your Bay Area food opinion goes? Oh, think the taco truck at the Hotsi Totsi in Albany and the tacos Alto Lens is like, I think it's the greatest in the Bay Area and probably the greatest in the world. That's my ride or die. <laughs> Why is that? It nails it. I keep, I keep trying. I like, I'm not, I'm, I'm open to being proven wrong. That's one of those things. Like I will, I will fight for the food I love, but if you come at me with something greater, like I will bow down to it. Like I, I I'm not like, a, I'm not faith-based in my, <laughs> in my sort of assessment of things. Um, it just like, I keep trying and, um, and they're like, you get the street tacos with the, with the salsa verde is my variant that I like con todo salsa verde. Um, it is like, 
it, it, there's nothing like it. It's just the greatest. <laughs> so you're like a version of that meme of the guys sitting at a table on a college campus saying, you know, change my mind. Yeah, feet kicked up. <laughs> I mean, <and> like, <laughs> if it involves you bringing me tacos, then absolutely, yeah, to try to to knock me off the, you know, my my, my the current uh, Mount Everest off of the off its perch, I'd be more than happy to. But um, so far, uh, nothing has quite compared. Awesome. Ooh, okay. I'm trying to think. I think my favorite taco truck is also in a parking lot um, mm. at the Planned Parenthood in Redwood City, <laughs> actually. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, it's a good benefit, I think, to getting a pap smear is that you also get tacos <laughs> oh along with it. <laughs> you can sort of psych yourself up for it, you know, if you know you're yeah. going to get a taco afterward. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, often you don't get anything, not even a cookie. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good service really yeah i think so i mean that's the fun part about my job at least is that you know i there's food everywhere even mm-hmm. when i'm going to the doctor so like there is and so like, you 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 know this as well especially like over the last four years i would say there's been like this uptick in uh the instagram mobile spaces of restaurants yeah. like yeah. randomly they'll have this neon sign that you you know that everyone kind of like tags online. Are you interested in seeing those things? Do you ever you know? Do you notice them when you're out? Like, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I notice them, but I honestly, it's not the way. I don't process the world through taking pictures of it. Honestly, mm-hmm. it just doesn't. It doesn't interest me, and it's not my first instinct. And I don't take pictures of my food, and um, I don't really follow those things all that much. So it's just sort of like that is just not how I process the world. I, I I love stories. I you know I make audio stories. I like listening to other people's audio stories. Like I listen to a lot of stuff. But this came up recently where somebody interviewed me who's a photographer, and he was like, "Why don't you have like the greatest architecture Instagram of anybody?" And I was like, "Because I just don't take pictures of things." <laughs> <laughs> it is not where my mind goes. Um, so yeah, it, that's not. I I don't. It, it just like I don't rock into. I just don't. I, you know, like I. But like I'm more than happy for other people to do it. Like I don't mean to uh, upset anybody or have anyone like, <laughs> like, like like want to like you know like think that I just I have disdain for them taking pictures of their food and posting it or whatever. I know it's a huge. It's hugely important to restaurants, and it's one of the reasons why they spread and you know people come in and I like a active restaurant scene and it's really sad this moment in time when we don't have one um so that that part of it is good but it's just not how my mind processes things or get excited about things to tell you the truth so you're not taking any selfies in front of like hashtag taco life signs or anything like that not at all let me at all let me toss in this one little one little aside this isn't a question but i I just felt like I, i needed to share this with you i remember I'm not going to say the chef was, but I remember a while ago, uh, there was a chef at a restaurant who had a group of people come in and they got their food, but they spent like the first five to seven minutes like taking photos of it and then going to like the like this one spot that was very Instagrammable. And then they came back and wanted to send their food back because the food was cold. <laughs> had oh, it God. for a couple of minutes already. Oh, oh that is anyway, very upsetting. That is so <laughs> tough, but I had to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that way about that sort of thing. Well, on this broad topic of restaurants and just also like neon, because I find that really interesting mm-hmm. too, it's just how have you observed the sort of architecture, the structure of restaurants 
I guess, how would you describe it today with the pandemic changing the way we interface with those spaces? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there was I think there was an increasing mindfulness towards the experience of being in restaurants um, with especially with sound. Like, I think that sound was the last thing to catch up, which was extremely upsetting to me because I'm I have a I'm really distracted by um, bad sound in a place. And um, and not even because I'm talking, but because I'm often listening to things if I'm by myself and, and I can't even if I can't even hear the podcast I'm listening to because the restaurant is so loud. It's like really something else. And it and it happened pretty frequently. So I, I we had done a story about Kamal and their sort of dynamic sound system, which basically takes like it takes it sort of like works like noise noise canceling headphones like it takes the sound in the ambient room and then it feeds it back and it creates like that where the where the waves overlap each other and nullify them and so it like create, creates a little bit more dead of a sound and that type of active noise canceling in a in a big boxy room they so like the aesthetics and the sound are working against each other a lot of the time you know like mm. people like big you know open spaces and you know exposed beams on the ceiling and stuff like that and that works against the sound and and so um, so these active uh, systems to help m- mitigate the the sound is is really really great. And so I noticed that was catching up because for a while, like the aesthetics was way ahead of our ability or the the willingness of the restaurateur to pay the expense to make the sound better. And it, that was catching up a little bit, and I I was grateful for it because I just can't hear people, you know, like I, I need to like, you know, and, and I don't talk very loud. And so I'm not, I'm just not a good restaurant person in that regard. <laughs> but, um, but the, um, but in the pandemic, you know, things are, you know, really changing a lot. And this reclamation of outside space is, um, is super fascinating to me. And, and, and the, and also the, the way that, you know, these restaurants set up at their doors, you know, they move everything forward and they serve you from the doorway. I'm, I'm really curious about the the various ways that people have figured that out you know made their space more modifiable i actually wonder if like for some you know restaurant workers like if they don't just like prefer some of it you know like you know like that that type of interaction i'm i'm, I'm just always kind of curious but the reclamation of space and taking over the street you know i've i've always been an advocate for streets being a little bit more like they were uh, like a hundred years ago where they, they had more use, you know, for pedestrians, for cyclists, for trolley cars, for horses and cars. And when we need space that we can distance and be together and still be distant and be outside. Um, I like that cities are experimenting with outside space and allowing restaurants to take over. So that that's pretty cool. Like I've seen crazy like booth systems like in North Beach, you know, like where it seems like there's a whole <laughs> like you're in a little house of your own. <laughs> And uh, all sorts of stuff, and and I'm fascinated by it. It's, it. It'll be interesting to see what sticks, if, if any of it does. Like if we have rolling pandemics, if this is just part of our life, you know, for the foreseeable future, or if just the the nature of like, oh yeah, I like it outside, and I like it this sort of protected outsideness instead of this sort of like put a couple of chairs and wrought iron tables like outside the window i'm i'm and generally i'm not an outside eater i feel like i don't want to compete for with my food for with nature so um but i i like some of these other ones that are more thoughtful and structured yeah our colleague was actually saying he's like 50 ish and mm-hmm. he said that he in, never imagined in his life that cars would ever be deprioritized in city life yeah and this has been almost revolutionary to witness 
Yeah, it's stunning. But the thing is, is like one of the things that we talk about in the book and we talk about in the show in general is this idea that the dominance of cars on streets is really only a hundred year old phenomenon. Like streets for millennia were multi-use in all kinds of ways. And so it really was a moment in time that we think of as, you know, the, the thing that is, you know, what roads are for, for cars. And they're not. They don't have to be. And knowing the history of it allows you to kind of be more free and experiment a little bit more, which I think is a good thing. So on that note, I want to backtrack to what we were talking about a little bit earlier about how restaurants, you know, the look of them has had to change during the pandemic and probably will change in the future as, you know, things develop. And I think new restaurants in particular have already started to integrate these sort of these pandemic compromises in their structure. But Justin, I want to hear from you too, since you've been reporting this stuff out for years now. What is the San Francisco look? I mean, I've, I've always kind of wondered this. I've always tried to figure this out. And I remember like if we're, if we're taking just like a chunk of time between like 2016 and pre-pandemic and, and right before the pandemic, there was, I remember this kind of like uh, explosion in aesthetics that catered to like younger millennial diners right and this could be small things from like an increase in like floral patterns or light pastel colors and you know a lot of places started i remember it was like from that mac and cheese spot that macaroni and cheese spot that opened macked to like this financial district you know kind of rock themed bar called hotel san francisco to Media Noche in the Mission, that Cuban spot, even to the Riddler, uh, the wine bar, like all of these places had something that catered to taking photos, that catered to social media. Like they had like a sign that lit up, they had like patterns on the floor, something that made it to where like a young diner would be like, oh, cool, I can go here and take a photo of that thing. Even if they weren't really into the food, they would see their friends like tagging the place. They might come by and take a picture in front of said thing with like the Riddler was the pouring champagne bottle, Vida Noche was the floor. Mac had this like restaurant name inspired sign, like all of these things were kind of catering to a younger crowd. And I remember I started to notice a lot of that. And it's just a younger crowd that's affluent out here, tech money, blah, blah, blah. And restaurants understand that there's like a whole customer base that's within that that they can appeal to. Yeah, man, things got really bright colored and kind of fun. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> there was something about it that, that I noticed for sure. I see. Well, that doesn't seem very San Francisco in particular, though, does it? I mean, I think the idea of there being a younger population that you can literally design a space for because you know they have enough income to become regular customers and support you mm. uh, is kind of a San Francisco thing, you know, because you have that, you know, you got that younger tech money that's floating around. Like kids are looking for, at least before the pandemic, when they can go out and eat and bar hop, we're looking for ways to, to, to spend their disposable income. And instead of them just being like the one-time customers, like businesses knew they could court this audience and kind of make them regulars, you know, alongside like the the older San Francisco populace that goes to their favorite places. That's a, that's a very San Francisco thing. Mm, okay. Yeah, no, I see that in Parklets now too, right? Where there are so many that are right. very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Um, there's one on Balboa Street in the Richmond district that is like the barriers are rainbow colored milk crepes, which I, I didn't know they came in colors wow. other than like 
white and black, first of all. Yeah. But they're yeah. arranged in a rainbow with like flowers and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is cute. I want to take a picture. And it makes me feel <laughs> like all of these people in our generation are like as consumers of of these spaces we're very much like crows and social media is our nest and we're just collecting like the shiniest things to weave into that nest <laughs> that is such a good way to put it you're absolutely right no we are collectors of experiences and they don't have to be in-depth experiences when it comes to social media they can very much be we walked past this place and took a photo right even in the midst of this ridiculous plague this death cloud hanging over all of us we still want to find something cute gotta do it for the gram sometimes you know (laughs) i mean what else is there i imagine this like dystopian future where people's (laughs) favorite restaurant will be a place that they've never actually been to and might not actually (laughs) might not actually know where it's located yeah but it makes me wonder, like, let's say let's say that's a possibility. Let's say there's going to be a generation of, of restaurant goers out here who have a favorite place that they've never actually seen or been to because it's a ghost kitchen. How is that going to affect, like, that group's, um, I don't know, maybe, like, appreciation or their understanding of, like, the aesthetics of a space? Because I, I think about it like this. This might be, like, a reach. But I think about it, like when we went from like having CDs to being able to download stuff online, the way I looked at like the design of albums was different because I was going to a website at that point and like, I didn't need anything in my hands. So like, do you think this, like this rise of the ghost kitchen kind of thing is going to affect how maybe how cities look or how like a certain, you know, a certain group sees them. I don't know. Well, it's it certainly could affect how they look. If there's, you know, restaurants are the thing you see the most, like as a street level pedestrian. I think. I mean, it's I don't I don't know if that's exactly true, but it feels like it's true. They're the, they're the yeah. ones that call out to you the most, and you're I'm the most interested in as a pedestrian. So if if those you know go away in a significant amount, you know, like I think you'll feel it. I think one of the things that is great about a restaurant that's a brick and mortar is the sort of the music of chance. You know, like you see a place and you go like, oh, that appeals to me. Like I like New York style pizza, for example. So if I see a pizza place that really like evokes the New York style aesthetic, I'll give it a shot. And there's something about the digital perusal, which you can search for those things and that totally works and maybe it's even more efficient, but um, you might not stumble upon those things the quite the same way. Like stumbling upon things is, is something that happens as a pedestrian in a city when there's brick and mortar restaurants. And so it's really astute, this idea that that you mentioned, that the idea of CDs to MP3s, like there's there's a thing about a physical object that that works on our soul and we own it a little bit more. And if a uh, a ghost kitchen with an app comes up, goes down. I don't know the owner. I don't always know the owner anyway. So I'm not one of those people that kind of knows everybody in a restaurant. Um, but like there's a thing about the impermanence of, you know, a ghost kitchen or something like that, that makes me think that just kind of like an MP3, like you don't feel like you need to own it. And then eventually like someone comes in like Spotify and t- declares to you, you never need to own music again, <laughs> you know, and, and we just yeah. buy into it. You know, like we just pay $10 a month and you're right. Well, I'm going to pay you $10 a month now. And so I do think it changes our relationship when we have a a physical and intimate interaction with the spaces that we eat. I I think it matters. Um, I'm not sure 
how it matters all the time, but it definitely matters. That's a, I can't tell you that. So Justin, I want to challenge you on that sentiment you expressed earlier in that segment, which is that the idea of people experiencing restaurants that they've never been to is a dystopia or is dystopic. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more. What is what is so bad about that? Maybe maybe it's just me being like a uh, curmudgeon slash romantic, but I like the idea of restaurants still being like tangible experiences. Like the idea of that your favorite spot is your favorite spot because you have a favorite table. You might have a favorite, you know, longtime bartender or something like that. You know where you need to park to get to it or what time you need to walk up. You know, if you haven't been there in a while, you can still explain to someone what like the chairs feel like, what the menu might feel like in your hand, like small details of what make a place real. You know what I mean? Like there's just God, maybe it's like on some old school BS, you know, it's reflected in my journalism kind of feeling of like, <laughs> ah, I love the idea of being able to feel a you know, print paper between your fingers kind of thing. <laughs> But I feel that I feel that same way about restaurants. Like I it kind of like breaks my heart to think that, you know, with the ubiquity of of these delivery services, that at some point, man, like it's very possible. Look, whatever restaurants need to do to survive, fine. But it's you know, it's okay to be sad about aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is just like the idea that, you know, maybe somebody might not ever know where their restaurant is. They love the food and all that other stuff, but they, they're missing out on this, like, whole other aspect of the experience. And, like, you know, restaurant owners put a lot of work into their spaces, at least, you know, pre-pandemic they did. I don't know. It's just maybe some old person shit, but that's how I feel about it. <laughs> okay, so I see your point. But I would also, to, to play internet devil's advocate, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where... You know, not having to go to a restaurant to get the food is the reality for a lot of people, too, right? Like, yeah, if you yeah. are unable to enter a restaurant space, right, because you can't actually get into the threshold because there's a step and you, like, can't access that, you're in a wheelchair. Or if restaurants are just too loud for you these days, which is a common complaint that I hear. Or if you just, in the past, have felt really unwelcome at places and, you know, maybe the the anonymity of of ordering online is just better for you because you know that you don't have to deal with any discrimination or anything like that, right? Um, there are many ways in which restaurants have not been necessarily welcoming to people and everyone. And I could see how not having to deal with that could be nice. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I, I feel like they're there's definitely some upsides to it. But if we're, you know, if I'm ignoring everything else and putting blinders on, <laughs> ignoring all the important elements, I definitely like because I always think about like the small things that uh, like having covered restaurants out of here for so long, like the small things people might put in their restaurants that you might not get to see where it might be a picture of a dad or an uncle or a mom that meant something to them or a crate of records from their great aunt's house or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that small stuff that they put in. But Yeah, no, I mean, there's so many ways in which restaurants are like people's houses. Oh, yeah. Like I think about how Anthony Strong, who we talked to earlier in the podcast, had a flamethrower positioned <laughs> yeah. above the past. That's right. Yeah. And the window into the kitchen. And you never really saw anyone use it. It was just there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or at Danby, this Korean restaurant in San Jose, the hallway to the bathroom is just wallpapered with drawings by kids 
who came into the oh, restaurant. Yeah. I don't know, man. We live in such a weird time when it comes to like dining out, and it's so hard to predict what the future will be. You haven't you haven't finished building that time machine yet? Can we just like get past a lot of this stuff? I would rather go back to the time of the dinosaurs so I could know what they look like. Do you want to talk about this right now? Because I'm down to talk about it. <laughs> You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Justin Phillips, and we're back with Roman Mars, host and creator of the podcast 99% Invisible and co-author of the book, The 99% Invisible City. So kind of on the online thing too and speaking of the menus too right because the online platforms like doordash and etc they tend to homogenize the experience of the restaurant where it's all the same font it's all kind of the same pictures um you know everything is really streamlined in appearance and it's speaking to the the way in which we interface with restaurants when we're not present in them I think a major part of, I think a lot of Americans, the way they inter- interact with other cultures um, is through restaurants, especially immigrant restaurants. Yeah. And so when you don't have that interaction, right, it seems like the the kind of the romance, I have to say, even though I don't really, <laughs> I don't really ascribe too much to the idea that you can learn so many things about people from yeah, eating no, their food. Yeah, no, I get that. I get what you mean, yeah. But at least like being in a space that is cultivated by someone who is exposure matters yeah it's not everything and it doesn't make people like not racist for example (laughs) right but like but it does help i think to have like interactions with people different cultures and eat their food like food is this great you know like i used to work for this uh, radio duo called the kitchen sisters and uh, they you know nobody loves food the way like davia nelson and nikki Silva love food and it's just a connection you know, like it's not the it's not the most profound connection in the world, and and horrible people can like good food. You know, you know, like I totally get that. It doesn't solve uh, world peace or anything, but I do think that you know, knowing who makes your food, um, knowing the nature of it, like there's a difference. Like when you walk into a restaurant, for example, and you can tell like it's run by a family when there's like a twelve year old busting your table. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's something different about the feeling of being in a place like that. Um, than than someplace that is you know has normal workforce and i like a normal workforce too but but there's just something different about that so you get these visual cues as to how you're supposed to like interact with the food because of these um these choices or these conditions of of a place you know the the greasy spoon sort of diner aesthetic that i like a lot like a i like a a good clean you know like fluorescent you know there's a mop in the bathroom in the back you know like <laughs> you know like you know there's something about that that conveys something to me too like there's like a, a lack of fussiness and there's like a sort of like you're gonna get you know like really good pho here you know but but the mop is in the bathroom that's just the, that's the deal we've made you know like and i i like that too so i do think that there's something lost in that homogeneity and I also think there's something lost in just the negotiation with food. So, you know, one of the places I like a lot in the East Bay is this place in Richmond called um, Tacos El Tucan. 
and they have a toucan fries, which is basically nachos on French fries, which is like the greatest invention of the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, the other day I was trying to order it on DoorDash and it wasn't listed. And I know it exists, you know, like that, that, you know, like, but maybe, I don't know why I, I have no, but there's no one to negotiate with. There's no one to say like, why is this not listed? Is it because they can't guarantee the quality of it because you put that stuff on French fries. It kind of sucks after about 20 minutes. You know, you have to eat it fast or is it something else? But I don't know. And it's just frustrating. And I, and I get frustrated at DoorDash for it, but I also get frustrated at the restaurant for it. And it's unfair. And I don't even know whose fault it is or why. And hard, non-negotiable structures in our life do, do something to distance us from people's choices and, and empathy and it, and it, I think it undermines our negotiations in the world. Like, I think that if, if I were to go there and they were to say they were out, I, w- I would look at someone and I w- it would be fine. <laughs> you know, like I would get over it. But this other one is just like, I'm just like powerless. And I'm like, why? You know, and, and that is not a, that's not a fun feeling. And so, so yeah, I, I think it's important to have these places. No, speaking of empathy, too, when you're at the restaurant, you know, Tacos El Tucan is a pretty small space, too. So you could see when it's full, um, at least pre-pandemic, when people could eat in there. Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. can see behind the counter the people cooking. So you show up and it's full and the ladies behind the counter are looking really tired. You can feel like, OK, like I get it. It's yeah. And if it out. takes if it takes 45, you, know, you could be waiting at your home. And it takes an hour and you're just mad. But like if you see someone like harried and working their butt off, you know, like you just you just have to like let it go, at least if you're human, you know, (laughs) you know, you're, you know, um, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things you get the you get more information and it helps you out. You know, it just helps your brain out. Yeah, it's almost like it's better from like a labor perspective to show up, you know, in person. For sure. I used to deliver pizzas and. I do not know how I would bet that the besides the fact that they could they kind of coerce you into a certain tip structure on some of them, you know, Mm -hmm. but the idea of contactless delivery means to me that uh, delivery drivers are not getting tips anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. because there's something about looking them people in the eye and thinking about their effort which makes me think that um, tips are way down. I have to talk to someone. I, I have uh, uh, My family lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and they um, run a pizza place. And, uh, and I think they told me that with the contactless delivery, tips are way down for drivers. And that was like the huge, that's how I made a living was tips on when it came to that stuff. Uh, so um, I think it, that lack of human connection, I think really changes the economic dynamics. Mm. Yeah, and the default that they set the tips to, right? Like the range is a, you know, it's it's a false one. You could also specify how much you want to tip, but few people actually take the I, trouble. I have to admit, I do. I just sort of go with the generic, you know, like I just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to, if I'm using DoorDash, I'm specifically probably trying not to think too much. <laughs> and so, or do too much, <laughs> like I'm overwhelmed. And so, you know, I, they funnel me into a category and I think that that's it, you know, like, and. So a lot less thoughtful and it, and it has nothing to do with service. Like the, the reason why you would, you know, like you could give a tip, you know, if I hustled and got someone a pizza in 20 minutes, you know, like, you know, sometimes you get a bit, a bigger tip, but it's pre-done, you know, like you, you get it when you, when you order it, which, which sort of separates it from the concept of service. 
So I want to hop in here real quick and kind of emphasize like that human element that Roman was talking about. And I do think like, you know, without people being able to make eye contact, he's right. Like there's something that goes missing out of the restaurant experience. And I also have Soleil like this concern that maybe it'll be lost on people how hard these businesses work. And all of the people at these businesses work. And all of that goes into like the labor element of it. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on why the labor like point of view is so important to keep in mind right now. Well, I mean, it's always important to keep in mind, I think. And it's so easy. I mean, I find myself falling into it, too. It's so easy to just think of yourself as a consumer. Right. But you're also someone who has some say in deciding how you want to interface with the people who make the things that you like. Um, And many of us are both consumers and creators or laborers in some regard. You know, we're not only absorbing materials from other people, like we also have an interdependent kind of relationship. I think really it matters, especially because of how easy it is right now, right? As Roman mentioned earlier, when you don't look at someone in the face and just get something, like something just appears at your door and you're not able to really connect on a visceral level that a human made that happen, I think it's easy to forget. The idea that we are alienated from from fellow workers is always going to be really bad for a labor movement or solidarity across class lines. You know, I mean... We don't think too hard about whether our computers or whether our cash registers are happy or treated well. But I think <laughs> yeah, I think putting humans on that level of unthinkingness is it's just bad. I don't know how else to say it, but like it, it doesn't make it easy for us to care. I mean, so what does that mean for uh, I mean, because it's hard to predict like where all of this is going and what labor will look like down the line, how the pandemic is going to reshape the restaurant experience but like is there any future projection for all of this that we can think of it's the final episode should we try to go out on a good note do we need something (laughs) do we need some happy moment like do do we need the 80s freeze frame us clicking our heels in the distance like what's the what are we walking out the door on for this first season oh man i think there is i think there is a bright spot to end on i think that the fact that we're talking about this right now in a mainstream media podcast is really promising um not to toot our own horn too much but i think the fact that this perspective is like has a foothold in mainstream media is important i also think that there are so many people who have thought these thoughts we're not the only ones who have and who are mobilizing on behalf of the food industry right there are people like the food workers alliance and people like the independent restaurant coalition and the bay area hospitality coalition that have thought this through and are doing the most to organize on behalf of all of these people. So, you know, I think I think there's there's something there. And I think that like we are at a moment that is so exciting for labor and also for thinking about like the kind of cities, the kinds of restaurants that we want. I think that's just great. <laughs> I don't know how to be more poignant than that, but I find that really promising. I think that um, this is an awesome time for this kind of perspective. I love it. I'm 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 down. I'm down to end on that. Guillotines all around. Let's go. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. We should have ended a second earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh Ronald McDonald, first against the wall. Oh my god. So for 
listeners who want to find your work, you know, it's very easy to, but in case they live under a rock, um, where should they go? Where should they seek you out? Um, so I do a radio show uh, and podcast called 99% Invisible. You can find it at 99pi.org. I'm on Twitter at Roman Mars. And I do another radio show called What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law. That's, you can find that at trumpconlaw.com. But hopefully that show will be over with at the end of the year. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks so much. So that's all we have for today's episode and for this season. Yeah. Thanks again to Roman Mars for being in conversation with us. We will continue again, like we said at the top, to air episodes um, with a little bit less set dressing than usual. But there'll still be really interesting interviews that we hope you will be able to listen to while you're not commuting and not driving across the country to visit your family. Um, just sitting tight for the holidays. And so before we close it all out, I just want to fold in this one thing. Maybe it's just me being uh, in the nostalgic mood since we were talking about restaurants and stuff that we miss in this uh, in this episode. But I can't help but think about like how long, Soleil, you and I have been kind of working on this thing, man. Like, you know, anything in the news world that you work on for like more than a year, that's a long time if you think about so many different things that pop up between then like different kinds of news that you'll cover how the newsroom will change staff that you work with like how the business changes like it's a long time to invest in a project like this and uh and honestly you know this has been a blast it has been a blast working with you um it's been a blast like talking to these people that listen that are crazy enough to tune in and listen to us all the time and uh we're just super excited for what comes next. So everybody, we do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. See you next season. Maybe it'll be a musical season. We'll see. <laughs> Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil Ho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I would love to see fucking dinosaurs. Did they have feathers? Were they actually, were they actually red? I want to know if T-Rex was fat. Just a fat like, bird. Just a fat. Ex- See, that's what I'm saying. We have no idea. Look, like we go based off Jurassic Park, but how does Jurassic Park know what color dinosaurs were? They don't. They have no idea. It's lies. And like, I remember when I first learned that the Velociraptor in that movie was actually like much smaller, the size of like what a dog or a chicken or some <laughs> yeah. shit. And I remember thinking, like, what? Are you serious? I need to know everything about dinosaurs immediately. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I might get, like, an edit to my dinosaur tattoo and have, like, feathers put on it. Because- oh, the more. See, you get you get older, you learn more. I love it. You evolve.